today. We pray all this in your precious name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, worship crew. That was beautiful. My heart was stirred. My soul was stirred. Let's see if we are moving back and forth. We are. All right. Uh, let's see. Oh, I went back. Eh. Maybe I don't know how to go back, guys. Can you go just bring it back to slide one? I don't think the back button works. This is a great way to start off. Good morning. My name is Jared Long. Uh, Brian's introduction was overly kind, as he often is. Um, but I love Kara's word. Kara, you said we don't need an inspirational speech. We need the word of the Lord. Praise the Lord. Uh, that's what I uh, will um, be pleased to bring today. Thank you guys for uh, the confidence monitor there. Uh, are there any first-time visitors here this morning? First-time visitors in the house? Yes? Okay. Good. Uh, so as I was praying this morning, somebody pointed to somebody, so I'm just going to act like you knew that you pointed to somebody that was right. Um, as I was praying this morning, uh, the Lord brought me to uh, a first-time visitor that would be here today, and um, um, that it's going to be a special day today for a first-time visitor. Um, the Lord sees you and knows you and has something very special for you to speak to your heart today, a concern on your heart that he wants to speak to. Um, So, Father, I ask that you would uh, bless all of us today. Um, Help us to hear from you this morning uh, in our hearts, with these ears of our heart that you've given us, a way to hear beyond the voice of a man and to actually hear the Spirit of God uh, through a man. It's it's the mystery and the beauty of preaching, and we thank you for it, Lord. I I pray that that would be in operation today and that, um, that everybody would hear beyond my words and would hear your word. And would see you today, Lord, with the eyes of their heart. I especially pray uh, for uh, this first-time visitor. Uh, I pray that you bless them today. I pray you'd speak to them today. I pray they'd feel seen and known and loved by you. Um, and that the burden of their heart would be lifted in some measure today. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, so Brian said that I've seen, we've seen some miracles in our family, and we have. So i got to just tell you what those miracles were real quick. Uh, so 10 years ago... Um, my wife and I and our two very small boys, they were one in four at the time, we moved from Northwest Indiana to Cincinnati to be a part of a team that was going to start a new church. The church now today is called the Father's House. But just a couple uh, weeks after we first moved, um, my four-year-old boy at the time, who's now 13, almost 14 right here, uh, he had uh, started to have some very strange seizures, uh, night seizures, and um, they were life-threatening, and they were awful. And then about three months later, we found out that our one-year-old had brain cancer. And so here we are, uh, moved to Cincinnati to start a new church, and all of a sudden, right, we find ourselves in the whirlwind, which all of you have been in the whirlwind, right? Maybe not that whirlwind, but you've been in your own whirlwind. You know what it feels like. Uh, It's discombobulating. It's trying your faith. It's sometimes you feel like you're going to break, and then the Lord sustains you. So one of the things that the Lord has done through that is our, our 10-year-old, who's now out there, he was the one with, uh, he was one at the time with brain cancer, uh, he's living his best life with two very small brain tumors in his uh, brain, and he may live with those for the rest of his life, um, but he is, um, he's doing great. Um, the Lord used uh, a year of chemotherapy and tons of prayer and about a gallon of oil and about 5,000 hands being laid on him to get him to a place where he is living a normal and healthy and strong life today. We praise the Lord for that. And then Croy uh, was on seizure meds for eight years, and oh, I'm sorry for that pop. Maybe I'll, I'll move less. Is it this right here? Yeah. Okay. Um, 
Troy was on seizure meds for eight years, and about a year ago, the Lord gave our family faith uh, to get off the seizure meds and to see if the Lord had healed him. Because you don't know if you're healed from seizures as long as you're on seizure meds. You have to get off the seizure meds, which is kind of a leap of faith. feels like stepping out of the boat. Uh, but we did it as a family, and now for over a year, for about 14 months, Croy has been seizure-free and medicine-free, and so healed from that strange epilepsy. Yeah. So all throughout that journey, Candace and I um, had to rediscover that God's heart was for healing, and we had to learn how to pray for the sick, how to endure through ongoing illness, and then we got to minister. Uh, guys, am I going to need to use a handheld? What do you think? Okay, we can't endure this, right? <laughs> um, I'll pop this off if that's okay. And just... How's that? All right, no more pops. Good. Uh, so, uh, Candace and I, uh, we uh, ended up uh, writing a book about our journey into um, uh, discovering God's heart for healing. So, if you are going through ongoing illness, or if you know somebody who's gone, going through ongoing illness, and they need to be encouraged to discover that God's heart is for healing, to learn how to pray for the sick and weather that storm, um, we put out a book last month. It came out called God's Heart for Healing, and um, it can be a blessing to somebody who's going through that situation, available on Amazon and all that good stuff. So, thank you for uh, letting me bring that up. So last week, Brian uh, started, uh, I guess maybe for a couple weeks, but especially last week, he was talking about the tabernacle in specific. And, um, and so I, uh, I had been working through some uh, tabernacle teachings at our church as well in, uh, in Westchester. And so I want to kind of build off a little bit of what he said last week. And we're going to talk about the tabernacle of Moses representing God's throne room in the earth. Uh, so today we're going to think bigger. Some, some sermons, you focus on something very, very small. And some sermons and teachings, you, you, you really expand your mind up and you're like, okay, I'm going to think really big today. That's what we're going to do today. We're going to think big. So here we go. One of the greatest revelations that God ever gave to mankind and a revelation that is found all throughout the scriptures is this, that Yahweh, the supreme ruler and king of the universe, sits today in a heavenly throne room temple. I think there's a lot of people who don't know that. They don't know that the creator of heaven and earth sits today in a heavenly throne room temple. In the last book of the Bible, we see, the book of Revelation, we see that every angel and redeemed human, we see them assembled in the throne room, praying and worshiping. Every angel, there's a lot of them, and every redeemed human, there's a lot of them throughout all of history, can fit in this heavenly throne room temple in which God sits. That's a big temple. Most of what we know about heaven, we just know about this actual place called God's heavenly throne room temple. But let me show you um, where it says that, where it talks about that in the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 5, and verse number 11. John says, I looked, and I heard around the throne 
and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering 10,000 times 10,000s and thousands of thousands. Depending on your translation, it might say millions and millions, or it might say myriads of myriads, but it's a huge number. The largest number in the Greek language is thousand, and so you just say 10,000, and if you want to say something bigger, you say 10,000 times 10,000, and if you want to say something even bigger than that, it's 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands and thousands. Nonetheless, John saw a ton of people before the throne. Uh, Next, a little bit later in his vision, in chapter number seven, John says, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. They are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. So uh, um, a, a group of humans that no man could number, and angels 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands and thousands, all John sees before the throne. It's a big place. Bigger, right? I've seen like the Million Man March before. You've seen that pictures, like aerial pictures of the Million Man March in Washington historically. And it's like, wow, look at that mass of people. I can't imagine this mass of people. It's a big temple. The book of Revelation also depicts the throne room functionally as the control center of the universe. So that temple that John saw, and of course other biblical uh, people saw it too, Isaiah saw it, and Micaiah saw it, and Ezekiel saw it, and we're going to see today Moses saw it. Um, That space, that place, serves as the control center of the universe. The way John saw it was this. All the prayers and praises of God's people flow into the throne room from the earth, so imagine this massive uh, um, like, uh, cloud of, of incense, maybe. All these prayers just flying up into the throne room. They make their way there, and then God takes those praises and those prayers, and he sends forth angels, and he sends forth um, uh, just solutions and decrees into the earth. So it's this partnership between earth and heaven that the praises go up, the prayers go up, The Lord receives them. Jesus enters in as the great high priest. I love that today from Hebrews. We're going to look at Hebrews in a little bit. Jesus enters in as the great high priest. He takes those praises and prayers, intercedes. The Father takes them and says, okay, do this in the earth. But that space is the control center for the universe. What happens here is dictated by what happens there. This cosmic reality forms our Christian worldview and should inform the way we worship, pray, live, and think. One of the things that we try to, are trying to develop at the Father's house uh, is uh, something we call TRA, which is Throne Room Awareness, right? Like every day to have this awareness that Jesus is at the right hand of the Father right now, and the Father's on his throne, and my prayers matter And as they flow into his throne room, he takes them and he does things in the earth. 99% of which I'll never see. But this is what the Christian life is. We do things by faith, right? And so by faith, the, the Bible is clear that this is how it works. And so this is what we commit ourselves to, is to this cooperation between earth and heaven. So that's God's heavenly throne room temple. 
when God called the nation of Israel out of Egypt, so now we're going to back up in history 3,500 years to the book of Exodus. When God called the nation of Israel out of Egypt to be a people for himself, he felt that it was essential for them to have access to his throne room in the earth. He says, if they're my people, they need to be connected to my throne room because the throne room is the control center of the universe. And rescuing uh, Israel from Egypt, bringing Israel out of Egypt was part of God's rescue plan for the nations. This is how he's going to redeem the nations. This is how he's going to rescue the nations. And he's going to prepare the nations for the coming of Messiah, right? So part of this rescue plan is I need to give my people, the people of Israel, I need to give them access to this space, access to me and access to my throne, if I'm talking as the Lord. So what did he do? The Lord brought Moses up to heaven and gave him a tour. (laughs) Then he commissioned him to build a tabernacle, a mini version of the throne room in the wilderness. A mini version of the throne room in the wilderness. Uh, Think about it like this. How many of you have one of these up in your house this year? And just about every year, okay, very good. Not not as popular as they used to be, (laughs) okay. Uh, So nativity scenes. What is a nativity scene? It's a facsimile. It's a little representation. It's a miniature version of a greater reality. And what was the reality? Well, the real stable that Jesus was born in, right? And you say, oh, it's not even exactly right, because the wise men shouldn't have been there. Okay, we know. Uh, But nonetheless, uh, you got wise men there. They were part of the story at some point, right? And you got Mary and Joseph there, and you got golden frankincense and myrrh there, and you got the donkey, and you got the little goat. And which they have their own backstory, as we found in recent um, cartoons. Uh, and you got the whatever, right? But you got the, uh, the, the manger, okay? Um, you have all of these things. And what do they do? It's a mini, miniature representation of some, of some greater reality. Now, imagine if the Lord were to take something like a nativity scene and fill it with his glory and fill it with his power and animate it. wonder if you could walk up to a, a nativity scene and actually access heaven in some way. Woo! Come on, that would be phenomenal, right? This little miniature representation of a greater reality. And I'm positing to you that that's what the tabernacle is. The tabernacle is a miniature, portable, um, uh, facsimile, copy, pattern of the greatest reality in the universe, which is the throne room of God. That would make this tent pretty important, right? Right? And I think we'll see that here as we go on this morning. So let me show you a couple of verses uh, in which uh, the Bible uh, teaches this. So here we go. Uh, let's look at Exodus. Here we go. Uh, the Bible says that uh, in Exodus chapter number 24, it says, Moses, his brother Aaron, Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, we had two brothers and uh, the boys, and then 70 elders of Israel, they all climbed up the mountain, Mount Sinai. There they saw the God of Israel. Under his feet, under the God of Israel's feet, there seemed to be a a surface of brilliant blue lapis lazuli. Every time I read that, I think that's like an an ingredient for my pizza or something. Lapis lazuli. Um, As clear as the sky itself. And though these nobles of Israel gazed upon God, he did not destroy them. In fact, they ate a covenant meal, eating and drinking in his presence. Whoa, what a tour. What a privilege. 74 men get to go up on a mountain and encounter and have a meal with the God of creation. But Moses was called up to go higher, 
chapter 24, verse 15. Then Moses climbed up the mountain by himself, and the cloud covered it. And the glory of the Lord settled down on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it for six days. On the seventh day, the Lord called to Moses from inside the cloud. Then Moses disappeared into the cloud as he climbed up, as, as he climbed higher up the mountain. He remained on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. 74 men encounter God on a mountain. One man goes up higher. A glory cloud covers him. And for 40 days and 40 nights, he's in the presence of the Lord. What did Yahweh say to him? A lot. But look at this verse in chapter 25. Yahweh said to Moses, Let them make for me a sanctuary, he's telling Moses, so that I may live among them according to all that I am showing you, the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furnishings. You must make it exactly so. Now be sure to make them according to the pattern you were shown on the mountain. All right, so he says, you're gonna, here's what you're going to do. Big news. You're going to go back down there, and you're going to build what you've seen up here with me. Everything that I'm showing you, you're going to go down and rebuild a, a facsimile of it in the earth and make sure you build it exactly as I said, is what he said. And so uh, this is a, a simple artist sketch of it. And so from Exodus chapter 25 to Exodus 31, you get all the instructions of the tabernacle. Uh, of course, you get the Ark of the Covenant. Brian talked last week, if you didn't hear, Brian said that that's where it starts. It starts with the Ark. We're going to build a tent around the Ark because the Ark of the Covenant is a representation of God's throne. And so what's the most prominent thing in the throne room? The throne. What's the most prominent thing in the miniature throne room? The Ark of the Covenant, where the presence would rest. All right, so the Ark of the Covenant, and you had these cherubim, which are these winged creatures that would be on top of it, kind of acting as guards. Um, next, the table of bread uh, would be there. That was the next thing he talked about. Fresh bread on a regular basis gets set out inside of the tent. The menorah, which is, of course, the lampstand. The tent structure itself, lots of details for the tent structure. The altar of burnt offering, which is that smoking one on the left there. Uh, that's where they would burn uh, the animals. Then the courtyard, which is the area outside the tent. Uh, the oil for the menorah had a specific recipe. You couldn't just born, uh, use any old olive oil. You had to use some specific oil. Uh, clothing for the priests, um, the ephod and the chest piece for the priests. The high priest's robe had, had to be made in a very special way. The dedication ceremony for priests had to be, go a certain way for them to be dedicated. Um, the altar of incense, which uh, is right there in the middle, right before that inner veil, this altar of incense where they would go and they would uh, burn a really special incense that the Lord um, um, gave him a recipe for. And he says, I'll meet you there every morning. Every morning I'll meet you at that altar of incense, he said. Then uh, he gave details for offerings and contributions and for the wash basin, which is right in front of um, the, uh, the tabernacle. Um, and then the craftsmen, he said, I want th these to be the kind of men that build it. And then it ends with a Sabbath. It ends with a time of rest after it's all completed. Now, from beginning to end, as, they were, uh, as Moses was receiving these instructions and giving these instructions, and as this thing was being built in the wilderness, from, beginning, from the beginning, the people knew 
that what they were building was a pattern of something else. So here's a couple of words that we can use. So it was a facsimile of something. It was a copy of something. And there's biblical words in the Old Testament and New Testament about the tabernacle that you can trace back to each of these words. A facsimile, a copy, a pattern. That's what that is in the bottom left there. That's a pattern. Uh, a shadow of something else or a sketch of something else. Moses saw the genuine article in heaven and then was tasked to recreate a mobile throne room in the earth. All in all, there are 50 chapters of the Bible dedicated to the details of this tabernacle. 50 chapters. The Sermon on the Mount is like three, you know? 50 chapters dedicated to the design of that thing because of what it represents. It represents the throne room of heaven and other things, but that's, the, that is, that's what it's the pattern of. Um, eventually, that tabernacle would become brick and mortar, right? And who would lead in that? That would be David and Solomon would turn it into a temple, a permanent place, no longer mobile. Another 23 chapters are dedicated to that. So 73 full chapters in the Old Testament dedicated to the building of this structure. It has such significance. So what are Christians like you and I, what are Christians today supposed to do with the tabernacle instructions? What are we supposed to do with these 73 chapters and this significance of the throne room in the earth? Um, well, first, we can look back and we can see how all of it points to Jesus. And there's been so many books and, and sermons, and there needs to be more uh, taught about that, that every one of those components in the tabernacle all in some way points to Jesus. And it's the most fun study to see all that. But I'm going to set that aside because there's something else to do with it which is to look at the tabernacle and understand throne room realities. We can learn more about that space, that eternal space, that space that we have access to right now, that space that affects everything that happens in the earth. We can understand that space by looking at how it was recreated in the earth, right? That seems like it would be significant to do as well. So if we want to know God more, we should understand this structure uh, if we want to know how to live as God's living temple today, we should understand that structure, right? Because you have the era in which uh, the, the presence of God, the throne room of God was recreated in a mobile tabernacle and then in a permanent structure. And now how is it recreated? In congregations like us. We are the living temple today, right? Each of you are living stones if you're in Christ. And so we today are a alive, we're a living tabernacle, a living temple, and we get to host the presence of the Lord in the earth today. So um, th there's such relevant conversation about this. Uh, the book, writer of Hebrews uh, spends a lot of time drawing parallels between living Christians who are the living tabernacle and living temple of God today and that tabernacle in the wilderness. And so the writer of Hebrews is constantly going back and forth so that we can learn how to live with the presence of God in our midst. Look at Hebrews chapter number eight. Writer says, we have a high priest, Jesus, who sat down in the place of honor beside the throne of the majestic God in heaven. There he ministers in the heavenly tabernacle, the true place of worship that was built by the Lord and not by human hands. For when Moses, here we go, this is what we just read, Exodus 24. For when Moses was getting ready to build the tabernacle, God gave him this warning, be sure, that you make everything according to the pattern I have shown you here on the mountain. 
And then Hebrews 9. Hebrews 9, 11. So Christ has now become the high priest over all the good things that have come. He has entered that greater, more perfect tabernacle in heaven, which was not made by human hands and is not part of this created world. Okay. All of that gets us, gets us to this, where we can ask this question. What does the tabernacle of Moses teach us about the throne room? So we'll answer it in five ways this morning. And uh, I pray that uh, these five ways will help to shape this community to more appropriately and more ably host the presence of the Lord in this space as you gather week in and week out. Are you ready? All right, here we go. Number one, what does the tabernacle of Moses teach us about the throne room? Hidden water. Had to get it from the side. That was a trick. All right, first. Throne room access is a privilege. Okay. So that little tabernacle in the wilderness, that tent in the wilderness, um, not anybody could just walk into that tent, right? If you know the history of it, if you don't know it, that's fine. I'm just telling you. Not anybody could just walk into it. It was a highly privileged place. And, the, you know, if you're like, well, I don't know, why didn't they make it like the, um, like a McDonald's? You know, anybody can just walk into a McDonald's. Well, yeah, you could. And the Lord could have made the tabernacle so that any old person could just walk in and take a look around, right? Like a public place. He could have done that, but he didn't. Why did, why did he make it so selective? Why did he make it so restrictive? He made it so restrictive to be able to communicate something that the throne room, throne room access is a privilege, that this is a sacred place, and it is a privilege of all privileges to be able to walk into it. So one of the ways that the Lord did this is by setting 10 limitations on the holy place. 10 limitations on the holy place. Uh, the first limitation was nationality. So you couldn't go in, if you lived 3,500 years ago, you couldn't go in if you weren't a Jew, right? Um, so probably most people in here would be disqualified, or then no doubt maybe some of you have some Jewish blood in you. But number one, you got to be Jewish, Number two, you have to not only be Jewish, but be of the tribe of Levi. I'm pretty sure by this point I probably have lost everybody. Uh, number three, then you have to be a priest professionally. So your nationality, your lineage, your profession. Number four, gender, you have to be a male. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. You have to be a male to be able to go in there. Number five, age. You have to be over the age of 30, which most of you, you're okay, but maybe, no, not some of you. Not some, I can tell some of you are not over the age of 30. You have to be over the age of 30 to be able to go into that space. What else? Number six, uh, location. Uh, you have to live in the nation of Israel. All of us are sunk. Next, health. You have to have no blemishes. And even baldness is a blemish in the Bible. It actually says it. So uh, even, even this blemish right here. But you can't have any blemishes. Uh, you can't be sick. Um, next is frequency. You can't, you, even, if you, even if you hit all uh, uh, seven of those, the eighth one is frequency. You can't just go in there any old time you want. You can go into the most holy place, that last part of the tent. You can go in there one time of year, and only for like a few minutes, maybe an hour at most, because then you've got other jobs to do on Yom Kippur. So you can, you can only go, go in there one time for a few minutes. So frequency is a limitation. Um, once a year, just enough time. And then the last one is singularity. You could never go in with your wife. If you're a high priest, you can never have the privilege of being able to take your wife in there or take your kids in there or take your mom or dad in there. Oh, go, or, go in there with your spiritual family. No, 
One guy got to do it one time a year for a few minutes, and he got to behold the glory of the Lord in that sacred space. And why did the Lord put all those limitations on there? It's to show and to prove and to communicate effectively that throne room access is a privilege. Now, all of us would be super sad 3,500 years ago because we don't fit those qualifications, but today we can rejoice in the fact that all 10 limitations have been removed. And so today, as we stand on the earth, as we gather as a spiritual family in spaces like this, as God's living temple, the real presence of God can be among us. We have his ear. We can feel the heat of his gaze. We know that we have his attention. Sure, his attention is on all the other congregations in Plymouth and Indiana and America and the world, but he's a God who can set his full attention on all the congregations at one time because he's limitless. He's omniscient and omnipotent and all the omnis, right? And so God can give us his full attention and we can enter into his presence and really access heaven and really uh, give suggestions into the throne room that the Lord would take and would say, that's a wonderful suggestion. Who do you want me to heal? How do you want me to reach your city? What do you want me to do with your job? And our prayers actually make it there. He considers them and does something in the earth with them. What a privilege. All 10 limitations are gone. So in our living temple today, we have full access. That's why the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter number 10, so let us go right in to the presence of God, right? The, 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 the book of Hebrews was actually a sermon, and I can just feel the, the excitement inside of the preacher. It's building and building throughout Hebrews, and I feel like he just screams it out. It's a, NLT is the language I'm using, but in the NLT it says, so let us go right into the presence of God. Let us go right in. Let us go right in, because all the limitations are gone. I bet they had some phenomenal first century prayer meetings, right? Because they lived the life where nobody got access to the Lord's presence. Every mediator they ever had was a man, a sinful man. But now they don't have to rely on a sinful man to mediate for them. We get to go directly to the God-man. Mystery of mysteries, what a privilege. So number one, what, do we, what does the tabernacle in the wilderness teach us about the throne room? That throne room access is a privilege. Number two, we learn that um, holiness is the prevailing mood of the throne room, holiness. Now, I don't know what happens to you when I say holiness. Hopefully you don't hear an archaic word. Hopefully your eye doesn't twitch uh, when I say holiness, uh, or you don't grimace, or you don't yawn. I hope you don't, because the fact that holiness, the holiness of the Lord has been given to us that we might share in it, in my estimation, is the greatest privilege that the Lord has ever given to mankind, that we would share in his holiness. Uh, my definition of holiness, for what it's worth, is this. Yahweh's holy essence is his complete and utter uniqueness, his infinite worth and ultimate beauty that makes him distinct from all other beings. It's so unbelievably ravishing that there are creatures with eyes all over their bodies, with multiple heads and all kinds of wings, creatures that would freak us out. There are creatures that the Lord has created and assigned in the heavens to do one thing, to behold his beauty. And they never stop just simply saying holy, holy, holy. In the Hebrew, kadosh, 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 kadosh. And they never stop saying it because they never once diminish in their wowness of it. Like, it, it never gets old. It never gets old. 
So if that's the dominant expression of his character in the throne room, and then if he looks down and says, now, would you like to share in my holiness? What? What do you mean share in your holiness? I'm a sinful man. I know. You want to share in my holiness? You want me to put my holiness inside your clay jar? I know it's all cracked. I know it's got blemishes. I know you're not perfect. But it's my pleasure, the Lord says. It's the Lord's pleasure to put his glory and his holy essence inside of us. We, we have got to, we have got to, in a generation, flip the script on what the enemy has done to make holiness an archaic burden that believers carry, that believers wear, a badge that only has to do with the way you look on the outside. There's got to be a generation who goes to the scriptures and says, that's what holiness is? And you're telling me if I'm carrying this, which we might say is a sin, if I'm carrying this habit, then I can't carry your holiness well? Well, then let me set that down, because I want to carry your holiness. So there are weights and sins and things that the Lord does not want us to carry. That's part of the holiness conversation, right? There's behaviors that the Lord says, don't engage in those. But he doesn't do it because he's an angry dad, and he wants to take all the fun out of our life. He does it because he says, if you hold those you won't be able to carry my holiness, to, to, to bear my holiness as much as you could. And let me tell you, in his presence is fullness of joy. And his holiness is the greatest privilege that he's ever extended to you. You want to bear it. And so we let things go and avoid some things in this life so that we can engage in the greatest privilege that he's given to mankind. Over 170 times, Carol, put your music back. Over 170 times when when Yahweh is giving these instructions for the tabernacle, he says, kadosh, holy. So holy men using holy tongs on a holy altar with a holy lamb on a holy day with the holy ones. Holy, 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 holy. 170 times, why? Why does holiness need to pervade the tabernacle? Because of what it represents. The holiness of the Lord in the heavens is the dominant expression of Yahweh's character. And so, we need to make a holy place in the earth. And today, we need to be a holy people so that we can represent him well. That's how we, that, this is the holiness that we need to hand our kids and call them into, the greatest privilege that's ever been extended to them. Ready for number three? Number three. What does the tabernacle of Moses teach us about the throne room? The aroma of intercessory prayers fills the atmosphere in the throne room. The aroma of intercessory... It's coffee in here today. Lots of coffee aroma in here today. It's, it's wonderful. I love coffee. Just as, the, just as the aroma of coffee fills this space, the aroma of intercessory prayers fills that space and filled the tabernacle in the earth. The aroma of intercessory prayers. Isaiah said it like this. I saw the Lord high and lifted up. He saw the throne room as well. The one sitting on the throne, and he said, smoke filled the temple. What was that smoke? It was more like incense. And the incense, we learn throughout the Bible, but in the book of Revelation, it says it most clearly, is that the incense is the prayers of the saints. The prayers of the saints. Specifically, the intercessory 
prayers of the saints. It fills the atmosphere of the throne room so that the Lord, when he breathes in, he smells the prayers of his people. And they're valuable. I think, so you know, um, the book of Revelation was written to seven churches in Asia. Most of you know that. Seven congregations like this. Like your one congregation, imagine six more. They were the original recipients of the book of Revelation. And I think one of the primary things they went away with after they received the book of Revelation is they said, our prayers do that? (laughs) What? Our prayers do that? It's like angels in the book of Revelation are taking the prayers of the saints and are, they're like going back down to the earth with lightning and things like, whoa, our prayers get exchanged for that? Holy cow. Our prayers are massively important, and they are. Jesus, um, in the book of Luke, Jesus, uh, I think just one or two chapters after the lepers, he walks into the temple And what does he say after he throws over the tables? He says, my house shall be called a house of prayer. And the word prayer there in Hebrew is tefillah, which is intercessory prayer. So if I could add another English word, Jesus says, my house shall be called a house of intercessory prayer. That space is dominated with intercessory prayer. It's in the atmosphere. The recreation in the earth of the tabernacle was a place where prayers were offered day and night without end. And the New Living Temple today should be baking intercessory prayers into the wood on the ceiling, into the carpet on the floor, because we represent the throne room of heaven. May intercessory prayer be the atmosphere of this house. I pray that when people walk in through these doors, they would feel the presence of God coming upon them, because intercessory prayer lingers here. Lord, may it linger here. As the aroma in the throne room lingers, may the intercessory prayers prayed by these people that are so precious to you, may it fill the air. And when people walk in who need help, let them feel the change, feel the difference. Just as we would feel the difference if we walked into that tabernacle or if we walked into the throne room today. May this space be filled with intercessory prayer and joyful intercessory prayer, fun intercessory prayer. If intercessory prayer to you, again, has a negative connotation, if you'd rather do anything except for meet for an hour of intercessory prayer, uh, then keep praying. And find out ways to make it fun, because it can be so fun. I think the atmosphere in heaven is lively and exciting um, with, uh, with the prayers of God's people. But make it, make it preeminent. Make it preeminent. When Paul was telling Timothy how to do church in Ephesus, he said, first of all, first of all, Blank sheet of paper, Timothy. You want to know how to do church in Ephesus, Timothy? Blank sheet of paper. Here's what you're going to write on the top. First of all, let prayers and intercessions and thanksgiving be made for all people. That's first of all. And then fill your order of service after that. That's how he says to, uh, to Timothy. First of all. Why? So that we can properly represent the throne room in the earth. Ready for number four? Number four. How am I doing on time, Eric? How many, how many more minutes? 10, 15. Okay, here we go. Did he just give me some extras? Yeah, all right. I'll go quick. 10, 15. Number four. The primary functions of the throne room include forgiveness, direction, revelation, and communion. So what, what does the throne room exist for? Sure, the glory of God. But functionally, what is it 
bring about in the earth? Well, I think a good list to start with is these four. Forgiveness. The throne room is all about forgiveness. The one on the throne, the Father on the throne, and Jesus at his right hand, and the blood that, that lives in, in there as an eternal testament to the yes of God every time a sinner comes for repentance, every time a sinner confesses his sin and says, would you forgive me? The blood stands so that Jesus always says yes. Forgiveness is so important to the one on the throne. And forgiveness became one of the main things that was offered in the tabernacle in the wilderness. It's all about forgiveness. Sacrifices. All the sacrifices, right? The wine sacrifices and the lamb sacrifices and the bullock sacrifices and the ox sacrifices. Hundreds and hundreds, of, no, I'm sorry, millions and millions and millions and millions of animals were sacrificed, even just in the scriptures, what the stories it talks about. Throughout uh, all of that period, why? Why all the blood? Why do these priests have to become butchers? <laughs> to communicate something really important. The forgiveness of sin is always on his mind. And he facilitates forgiveness from his throne. And he never loses sight of it. Cleansing. Purification. Uh, next is uh, direction. Direction. The tabernacle was a place uh, of direction. Uh, so there would be a massive pillar of fire and pillar of cloud that would move around the wilderness. And when they saw it moving, right, all the children of Israel would pack up all their things and they would move with it because the throne room gives us direction. We get our direction from him. And therefore, he said, you'll get your direction from me here. Uh, revelation. Revelation, meaning like wisdom and answers and information. People have all sorts of questions. And the Lord loves to give revelation from his throne to reveal what you should do to go left or to go right, to marry or not marry, to uh, go for that position or not go for that position, to pray or not pray, to you can go on and on. People have, people have questions. I need to know what to do. I need to know what choice to make. I need wisdom. The one on the throne gives that wisdom liberally, gives revelations so that we can know how to live our lives, and that space was a space of revelation. They would have these uh, ways that people could get their questions answered. I won't go into that right now, um, but revelation. And then lastly is communion, is presence. 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 That was the most precious things to the people, to Moses. If your presence go not with me, I don't want to go, right? Presence. The presence of the one. Comfort's not found in an answer. It's found in a person. It's found in the presence of a person. When you were sick, when you were young, um, those of you who had a mom growing up, and I, I hope everybody in here did, and I'm sure maybe some of you grew up in a home without a mom, but um, I, I remember me when I was a child growing up, and uh, if I was sick or hurting, I just needed to be in my mom's presence. As soon as I was close to her, everything was going to be okay, right? Presence. Presence is so powerful, and it's so sweet, and it transcends all words. It transcends everything. Presence. And his presence among the people was what set them apart from all the other nations. His presence in the heavens is what's dominant. It's the greatest thing about heaven is Jesus. It's his presence, right? And so in this house and in all churches, the dominant functions of houses like these should include forgiveness. Saints and sinners alike should be able to come in here on a weekly basis and find forgiveness, right? 
And so the talk of forgiveness, constantly calling people to confession and repentance. Forgiveness, direction. People walk in here and say, I don't know what to do. I got a choice to make this week, and I don't know what to do, right? I need some direction. I need some revelation. I need some wisdom. And as we properly represent the throne room, we'll tap into divine wisdom, and we'll get an ear, develop an ear from the Lord where we could actually ask the Lord a question, and we learn how he gives us answers developing our own communication, our own language with the Lord. And then communion. Let this be a place where people can feel and experience the presence of Jesus in your midst as you all carry his presence inside of you. All right. Lastly, number five. What is the throne room? What does the tabernacle of Moses teach us about the throne room? The throne room is central to our everyday lives. Throne room awareness. Every day. Throne room awareness. So the way that the Lord uh, communicated this so clearly was by um, having them put the tabernacle in a strategic place in the camp. Right? So uh, there it is. So you got um, 12 tribes of Israel. And um, so you have different tribes lined up north, south, east, west. You couldn't fill in the gaps, northeast, southeast, northwest, southwest. Couldn't fill those in. And so strategically, the Lord turned it into a cross, which is just his wisdom to do, right? (laughs) It's beautiful. Um, And so we have this cross. This is how the million people of Israel would camp in the wilderness. They They would form themselves like a cross, and then the tabernacle would go right in the middle. And what did that communicate? I communicated that you center your life around this place. This is the first year of their independence from Egypt. They're trying to lose their slave mentality. The Lord says, I'm going to help you lose your slave mentality. I'm going to help you become a fully functioning people. But you put me in the middle. You keep me in the middle of your camp. You keep me in the middle of your nation. You keep my presence. The tabernacle that hosts my presence stays right in the middle. And everything else revolves around that place. Center your life around my presence. He had them incorporate this rhythm of life to communicate to themselves and others what they were going to revolve around. The throne room is central to our everyday lives. And so as we grow in the Christian life, as we grow in our understanding of the Lord, and as we grow in our, um, um, in our uh, commitments to him, as we grow in our disciplines, that's what I was looking for, a tough word. As we grow in our disciplines of the Christian life, one of the things we need to grow in is, Lord, How do I effectively make you the center of my life? I think one way to effectively do that is to connect with him in this throne room reality every day. So if that's a prayer that you pray that reminds you of who he is and where he sits, how that's the control center of the universe, and how we are to represent that in the earth today as a community, maybe it's a prayer. Uh, maybe it's songs that you sing that bring you there. I have like a throne room playlist, right? There's so many wonderful songs about the throne room and about holiness and about glory. And I play those songs and it reminds me, it keeps me anchored in this reality of who I am, of what my church is in my city, of what my church is to be doing and where he is now. And it's a constant, a constant invitation to come in. Come in, the Lord Jesus says to me all the time. He says, come in, Jared. Come in, come in, come in and pray. Come in and intercede. 
Join with me. Jesus ever lives to intercede at the right hand of the Father, and I have the joy and the privilege to come in and to intercede with him. My voice mingled with his voice. My heart mingled with his heart. My mind mingled with his mind. My prayers mingled with his prayers to create a unique aroma to enter into the nostrils of Abba Father to do something in the earth. We center our life around his presence. We joyfully enter into this calling and this privilege that he has given us. So do you need forgiveness of sins today? Do you need direction today? You need to help on making a decision. Do you need some revelation, some wisdom from heaven? Uh, do you need to uh, just be in a place where somebody's praying over you, where you can feel the presence of the Lord? It's not hard to feel the presence of the Lord. If I were to call one of you uh, saints up here and just says, hey, would you lay your hand and pray on me, pray for me? Within about five seconds, I'll be brought into, uh, something will shift. I'll say, okay. This is a spiritual moment right now. Okay, two spirits are engaged, and the high king of heaven is listening. Okay, right? Communion in a small but meaningful way. Presence. I want to encourage you to take full advantage of prayer time after the service today. Um, as Eric will invite people up for prayer, as he often does, uh, Candace and I uh, will be here. And if anybody wants to pray with us, we'd love to pray for, for anybody as they, care, um, as, as they um, um, need prayer today. So Kara and the team, if you want to come up. And prepare for the song. Father, anchor us in these realities. We thank you for your word. We thank you for this revelation of who you are. We've tried to think bigger this morning to expand our mind, to understand the majesty of the heavens and our relationship in it and with it. Lord, may this house be a house of prayer. May these people be a people of prayer. And as prayers get offered up to you today during this song, during this song of praise, and at the end of the service as people pray, Father, I ask that you would hear, that you would answer, that you would give green lights maybe where you've given yellow lights before, that you would say yes when people ask you for things today. Let there be a liberty and a freedom in your heart to bless the people of Plymouth Community Church.